0: Um, For some of you, when you came in this morning, you were handed a piece of paper. Uh, Those were called uh, bulletins back in the day. Um, Actually, we'll start off this way. Yeah, you're good. This is a little bit of a uh, different transition for us. Um, So the title of the message today is called Carried Away. We're going to jump into that in just a minute. Uh, When I grew up in church, and for some of you, if you grew up in church, you probably experienced the same thing I did. Um, Growing up in church, they called uh, what we're doing now uh, a worship service. And, you know, it never really struck me as anything big when I was a kid, but it was always called a worship service. Then they handed out these pieces of paper that were called bulletins, and they don't look like the pieces of paper you got that are, you know, highly designed and colorful. They they were like black and white, and they said bulletin on the top. And then there was another thing right underneath that, that that almost every church had on it, especially the church I grew up in. It said, order of order of service, or order of worship in some services, some churches, order of worship, and it kind of went through all the details of what the events were. But when we think about this word, when we think about the word worship, I, I kind of wonder, and maybe you, you find yourself wondering the same thing, what is worship? What exactly does worship mean? Why do we call you know, this event a worship service? Why do we call singing like we just did worship? What is worship? And, and if you're to actually look at the, the actual definition of worship, and some of you probably already know this, to worship something is simply this. To worship something is to recognize something's worth. That's what worship means. Worthship. That you found something that has worth, and you've recognized that worth. So then how do we worship someone? Simply to recognize someone's worth. Right? And we do that all the time. We've been doing that all throughout human history. We recognize value in someone, and therefore, we begin to worship that thing. We've found it's its value. We've recognized its worth. And then we begin to worship. And this isn't something new. This isn't something that just happens in churches. This is something we do all the time. This is something we do in our culture today. And it's something that happened in our culture years and years, thousands and thousands of years ago. In ancient worship, in ancient worship, but when, when we're going back to kind of the beginning of time, the beginning of, of humanity, recognizing that there's, there's some kind of intrinsic value, right? When they, they, they would get together with family or they'd get together with friends or they, they'd get together with a group of people or maybe just get together with, with some people in their village, they would recognize that there is something that kind of sat outside of their, their group, of their village, of their family, of their people that kind of orchestrated things. And, and in ancient worship, they, they called these things God's. And they would would do whatever they could to appease the gods, to worship the gods. And in ancient worship, this tended to go along the lines of sacrifice. That somehow, somewhere, they made a connection between kind of working to honor the gods and working to please the gods and working to gain the gods' favor, that there was some connection with that to the spilling of blood. So they performed sacrifices. Because if you, wanted, if you wanted your crops to grow, you had to appease the gods. You had to, you had to worship the gods. You had to sacrifice to the gods. If, if you needed rain, if you, you, know, you wanted your wife to have, have a, a child, you had to try to appease the gods. So they would, they would offer the gods sacrifices to try to gain the gods' favor, to, to kind of worship the gods and, and have the gods recognize them. So they would sacrifice. And then the, the more serious you were about whatever it is you were trying to earn the gods' favor on, the more serious you were about it, the more serious and more personal, more valuable the blood you had to shed. So maybe it started with animal sacrifices, but if, if you were really serious about it, then, then maybe it moved into human sacrifices. And in ancient cultures, they would, they would sacrifice humans to their gods, they would sacrifice their enemies to their gods. And, and if, it, if, if you wanted even more recognition, you would sacrifice maybe somebody in, in your village. And if you wanted, like, the, the top tier, if you were willing to do anything to get the gods' favor and to get the gods' attention, In some cultures, you would even sacrifice a child, sometimes your own child, all to get the gods' favor, all so that the gods would recognize you and your crops would grow, or your wife would be healed, or you would have the child you've been longing for, or you would have the son you've always wanted, because in ancient cultures, that's what mattered. Sorry, ladies. But it was all about having that son, and they would pay a high price to get that son, but see, trying to figure out what the gods required, it, it, was, it was a tricky business. Really, it was virtually impossible to try to figure out, well, what is the God going to require of me? What do these gods want so that I can get what I want? How do I kind of figure out that secret formula? What's, what, what, what do I have to do to make sure the gods look on me with favor or make sure the gods bless my crops or bless my work or my family? So typically what came along in all of these cultures is, is, is somebody like me some high priest, some holy man, and they they were almost always men for for some reason. But but these holy men would come along, and they would claim they knew the secrets. They knew the formula. If you wanted to please God, you had to talk to them because they knew how to do it. And they would come, and they would convince people, and they would convince villages. They would convince, in some cases, a nation or an emperor how to do what they had to do to appease the God. But what's really interesting is that in almost every one of these instances, To please the God, somehow, there there was this this parallel where in pleasing a God, you you ended up doing things that really pleased the high priest, the, the, the holy man. That somehow, earning the God's favor was almost like you had to earn the priest's favor. And although that happened in ancient times, it happens a lot today, doesn't it? For some of you, maybe that's the reason you stopped going to the church you grew up in. Because you felt like, like more and more over time, it wasn't so much that I had to please God, but it was to please God, I had to please this man, I had to please this, this high priest, I had to please this person who claimed to know the secret. And it didn't seem like that was the way it should be. It may, maybe there had to be more to that, that situation. There had to be more to this idea of God and pleasing God. But these holy men were the only ones who could open up the holy scriptures and manipulate the scriptures to manipulate people, to manipulate nations, to manipulate you to do what they ultimately wanted you to do. All in the name of worship. That's what it was like to worship in ancient cultures. And it's important we know this, to know where, where the story's going to go. You see, this, this was the, the outside world. And then our Bibles, they high, kind of highlight the, this, this inside group of people that the, almost the entire Old Testament focuses on. This group, we call them Jews, but at this point they wouldn't even recognize as Jews. They were called Hebrews. This little nation, this little Hebrew nation, this ancient Jewish worship, this ancient idea of their religion kind of creeps into society. And ancient Jewish worship was very different in some ways and very similar in other ways to this ancient form of worship. It was similar in that there were animal sacrifices. But but it was drastically different, it was starkly different in why we did, why why they performed these animal sacrifices. In ancient culture, it was to kind of bribe God, to appease God, to get God on your side, to do what you ultimately wanted to do. But in ancient Jewish worship, something was different. God didn't need to be bribed. We didn't offer animal sacrifices to God to bribe Him. We offered animal sacrifices to God to cover something. You see, the Jewish God, he wasn't as concerned about sacrifice. Israel's God was more concerned about obedience. Israel's God was more concerned with obedience than he was sacrifice. He was more concerned with how we treat other people and how we treat our family and how we treat visitors and how we treat our neighbors than he was about what the sacrifice was you were offering to him. So these outside pagan gods, they were concerned about the sacrifice. What are you doing for me? And then people would interpret that as the more I could get you on my side, the more favor I was shown. But Israel's God said, no, what are you doing for others? How are you treating others? How are you helping others? That's really what what I'm concerned about. As a matter of fact, a Jewish king, a very famous Jewish king, you probably have heard of King Solomon. He said it best in Proverbs. He says it this way. He says, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. To do what is right and just. Well, how do we know what's right and just? If you're interested, read Deuteronomy 28. For those of you taking notes, you can read this at home. I'm not going to walk through the whole chapter, but this is kind of the hinge in in the Old Testament, in the story of this ancient Jewish culture. This is the moment where God kind of through uh, um, Moses, he brings this law into the land. He says, here's what's right. Here's how I want you to treat people. Here's how I want you to behave. And he he makes this this incredible covenant with with this this Jewish nation, with this Hebrew nation. He says, here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to be my people. I want to show the rest of the world that there's a God who isn't concerned about the sacrifice, who isn't concerned about you trying to please them and bribe them, but he's concerned about how you behave when you treat others. So to do that, I'm going to move you into this land. And when you get to this land, here's the law. Here's how I want you to behave. Here's how I want you to treat each other. And he gives them this incredible law, Deuteronomy 28, you should read it. It it outlines how you treat each other, how you treat your kids, how you treat your wife, how you treat your husband, how you treat visitors, how you treat foreigners, how you treat your enemies, because I'm way more concerned about how you treat people than I am about the sacrifice you offer to me. And in this moment, worship was changed forever. Because before this, outside of this and all the surrounding nations, everyone's offering a sacrifice. A sacrifice to try and appease and bribe the gods. But in this culture, God said, no, no, I'm not so much concerned about this as I am about this. Learning to do what's right. But the, the, the Jewish people, they still offered sacrifices. Well, they offered sacrifices because every time you didn't do what was right, you had to, you had to offer something to cover what you did. This is, this is a really big idea in Jewish, in Jewish culture. They would offer a sacrifice for atonement And atonement what wasn't forgiveness, atonement what wasn't like, oh, it'll be forgotten about forever." Atonement really means at one meant. It means there's two parties, and there's, a, there's this disagreement, there's this, this separation, there's this divide between the two, and we've got to find a way to bring the two back together. So we're going to offer a sacrifice for atonement. Really, what atonement means is to cover. To cover something, to cover cover something, to to bring something over it. So the shedding of blood was to cover what was done. In Jewish culture, here's what atonement actually means. It means to cover something, in particularly something bad like a sin. To cover something bad with something good in order to restore a relationship. So an animal sacrifice would be done anytime you sinned, anytime you did something outside of the law that God uh, uh, gave this Jewish nation, this Hebrew nation, anytime they operated in, in a way that wasn't right and just, they had to offer a sacrifice to restore the relationship that was bad and separate and make it good. But but all it really did was cover what was there. It didn't take it away. It didn't remove it. There was this lingering guilt. There was this this lingering pain. There was this lingering sin. But all they could do for this this very serious, this this very ultimate problem of sin, this ultimate problem of, of being in a fractured relationship with God was offer a sacrifice. A sacrifice of atonement. So day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the people of Israel, these Jewish people, these Hebrew people, would offer sacrifices to try to get in a right relationship with God. As if that wasn't enough, there was this, this celebration, uh, this, this feast where once a year, uh, all of the, the Jewish people, all of the Hebrew people, and not just from like a small city, but from around the world would make a pilgrimage into the city to do this together as a nation. They called this the Day of Atonement where the entire nation would come together, and they would kind of work their way up as close as they could to the temple. And if you were somebody, or if you, know, you knew somebody, you would kind of make it onto the Temple Mount, and you would be up close, like right up front, of this personal experience of watching this incredible festival with all of these, these, these moving parts and this incredible day of celebration, where the nation would come together, and they would basically before God say this, We've all sinned. We've done things wrong. And some of us, we've tried to already offer atonement. Some of us, we don't even know what we've done that's wrong. But we know we've done something wrong. So as a nation, we're coming together. And we're going to seek God's forgiveness for all the sins of the nation. And in this incredible day of celebration, at some point throughout the day, the high priest, the, the holy man, the man like me, the only guy who could touch the scriptures and tell everybody how to please God, he'd come forward and he would lay his hands on a goat, symbolically putting all the sins of all the people in that nation on this goat. And then the goat would be led out of the temple. It would be led down the the southern stairs from the temple mount, through the city, out the wall, and and, and through the, the, the crowds of people between the walls, then out of the gate, and then through the small village outside the gate, all the way out into the wilderness. And it would be abandoned there. And all of this was done as a sign to symbolically reference, to symbolically remember what God was doing for them, that God was somehow fixing covering what they had done. That God would someday take their sins far away from them. But that was not that day. You see, in ancient Jewish worship, all they could offer was a temporary fix to an ultimate problem. All they could do was offer a temporary fix that someday would require an ultimate solution. And one day, Human history changed forever. You see, up up until this point, as we said, there were pagan gods. You offered sacrifices. You bribed to get them to do your way. Unless you were part of this this small nation, this small Hebrew nation, in which you'd offer sacrifices to atone for your sin, but God was kind of already on our side. God loved us, and God chose us as a people, and God, God was already for us. But we still were offering sacrifice to try to atone, to try to cover what we'd done that was wrong. And then one day, God would change worship forever. One day... Out of nowhere, this man comes on the scene. In Matthew's gospel, it actually says that this man comes out of the wilderness. And he's not like any man, that the nation of Israel, that this Hebrew nation had ever seen before. He spoke weird. He talked weird, and he looked weird, and he smelled, and he ate weird foods. But he spoke as somebody who was from this ancient culture. He spoke like a prophet, which was a big deal to the Jewish people, to these Hebrew people, because they hadn't had a prophet in hundreds and hundreds of years. This man comes on the scene and he speaks with, with this, this fervency and this passion and, and, and almost this wildness. This man was named John, but John was such a popular name in this culture, if you, if you were a John, you kind of had to have a last name or a nickname that go with it. John's nickname, as you probably have guessed, is John the Baptist. And he was called John the Baptist because he, he, you know, he went to the Presbyterian church and wasn't interested and then went to the Methodist church and was like, no, I'm out. Only some of you are paying attention. He's called John the Baptist because he did something that nobody else before him had ever done before. You see, before this point, if you wanted to to seek forgiveness of sin, if you wanted to admit your sin and try to make it right, there was a a formula. You had to offer a sacrifice. And if you, you did something wrong against your brother or your sister, God actually required you not just to offer a sacrifice, but to find your brother or sister and make it right with them. And then John comes on the scene, and and he he says, here's what I want you to do. He said, if you want to believe, if you want to be a part of this new thing that God's going to do, this radical thing that God's beginning to initiate, this thing that's coming after me that's going to change the world, I want you to come down into the water, and I want you to be baptized. And John would baptize people, and they'd never heard of this before. They'd seen people do, do something similar, but it was done on their own. It was typically when a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, and they weren't born a Hebrew or a Jew. They had to do this, this whole ceremony that involved eating a certain meal and going down into the water and washing, get this, they had to wash the Gentileness off them, and they received the Jewishness that they didn't receive at birth. That was part of, of, of their formula in becoming part of this nation and part of this religious system. No one had ever seen John just take somebody and baptize them for for the forgiveness of sin. That had never been done before. As you can imagine, in this ancient culture, with worship being what it was, this stirred up some noise. It stirred like this kind of almost riot in the community where thousands of people would exit their cities to come and hear John. John was on the Jordan River Valley. He was in the Jordan River Basin. And it actually tells us in the gospel that thousands and thousands of people, it actually says this, that everyone in Judea and Jerusalem came to hear John speak. Now, I, my guess is that's a little hyperbole. That, that, that's really not what happened. You know, it, It's like we say, like, well, everybody's going to be there. Right? That, that's, that's the best thing I've ever heard. But what we can safely assume is this, that, that even if, if that wasn't true, even if the Bible wasn't accurate, that everyone in the city exited to hear John. What we do know is that at, at the very least, tens of thousands of people Exited their city to hear John. Some from Jerusalem, which is over a day's walk away, unless you left really, really early before the sun even came up. They would make their way to hear John because God was doing something new. Perhaps it was no longer the temporary fix, but maybe he was bringing the ultimate fix. One day John's down there and he's doing his thing, and the religious leaders, they're, they're kind of hearing this commotion of all that he's doing, so they come down. And they see John and what he's doing, and and they think they're going to mess John up. John's talking with people, and they kind of poke their way through the crowd and say, hey, John, are you the Messiah? And John looks up. I I imagine you knowing his personality, how rough he is, and he stinks, and he smells, and he's eating weird food, like disgruntled, like, who are you? No, I'm not the Messiah. I'm John. But somebody's coming after me, and you better be ready. Somebody's coming after me, and he's going to do something that we've only dreamed of, that we've talked about around the dinner table as families when we worship this this ancient form of worship, this thing that we've been hoping for. It's coming, but it's coming after me. These religious leaders were, were sent home, having not tripped John up, but kind of made a fool of. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they wanted to get in on, so they came down one day. John's doing his thing again, and they come down. And and, and I almost imagine as soon as as John looks up and sees them, they know immediately this was a mistake. They're making their way towards John. John's talking to people about this new thing God's doing, and then he looks up and he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these these corrupt temple leaders, these these holy men that have manipulated the holy scriptures to get what they wanted so that they would be pleased. John sees them coming and he points at them and he says, look, you brood of vipers, You brood of vipers, who told you to come down here and and, and pretend like you live it right? I'm paraphrasing, but he essentially says this, he says, you go back and you continue to talk, but you live the way that is in contrary, that's complete hypocrisy to what you say. He said, who told you to come down here and interrupt me? This new thing God's doing, it's going to change everything and you better get ready. You better be willing to live and to practice what you preach. How dare you come and interrupt what I'm doing? Once again, the religious leaders completely embarrassed, completely mocked. Leave the Jordan River, leave John in shame. And then one day, everything changes. I've told you this story many times before, and I can't I can't exaggerate the emotion and everything that goes into this incredibly historic day. John's on the Jordan River. He's doing his thing like he's done for weeks and weeks. And this one day, everything changes. Jesus shows up at the top of the little mount where people were gathering to come down and see John. And John's in the water and he's baptizing people. And you almost get this idea. He looks up above the mount and he sees the whole swarm, thousands of people. And in the thousands, he sees one. And in the midst of everything that's happening, John says, stop, stop, look. Look, behold, look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb that God has sent, the, the, the offering, the sacrifice that God is providing, look, the Lamb of God who has come to take upon himself, speaking to the future that no one had any idea what that was going to happen, take upon himself through his own death, through his own crucifixion, and carry away. Like, take them away, not cover, not atone for, but to take away forever, once and for all, for all of time, the sin, but not of, not of this people, not of me, not of this nation, but of the entire world. Look, the Lamb of God, and in one afternoon, everything changed. In, in one afternoon... Worship would forever be redefined. And one afternoon, the world would never be the same. Jesus showed up. God, who for hundreds and hundreds of years was being sacrificed to, to cover for sin. God offers the sacrifice. The Lamb of God who's come to carry away, not cover, not not just atone for, but forever remove that gap, that thing that was broken, that thing that separated all of humanity from God. God was doing something to change the world. See, and and this ancient law, this this ancient Jewish form of worship that, that so many people look back and think, well, that's archaic and that's old and that doesn't matter. It's important for us to know this law because this law, and I've said this before, was perfect for its time. It was ahead of its time. When the law was initiated by God, when it was given by God, it was so far ahead of anything that the outside nations were doing because every nation had to try to appease their God and bribe their God. And then God gives a law and says, no, there's no bribing. There's no appeasing. I already love you. I'm already for you. Here's how to live a good life and live this way and you'll be good. Live this way, and, you, and you'll get this land. Don't live this way, and I'm just going to have to kick you out of the land. I, I love you, but I'm going to have to kick you out. For, for parents, we call that a timeout, right? Our kids behave bad. I love you. You're still my son. You're still my daughter, but you need to sit over in the corner and, and figure out what you're doing is wrong and how to, to come back and be a part of the family again. God's saying, I, I love you. I couldn't love you anymore. There's no appeasing me. There's no trying to earn my favor. I'm already for you. But this ancient law that was so good at its time, it had served its purpose. It had pointed everybody in the direction that there is an ultimate problem that needs an ultimate solution, but we can't do it ourselves. Something needs to change. So God said, I'll do what nobody else can do. I'll offer the sacrifice. You see, the law, the law is only a shadow. It's only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the reality themselves. This was written from the book of Hebrews. And, and no, one's, no one really knows who the author of Hebrews is. Some think it's a man, some think it's a woman. Everyone thinks it's a woman because we want to have just one in, in the Bible that was written by a woman. But no one really knows. When we get to heaven, you can ask God that question. I'm sure he'll let you know. But this, is, this, this whole book of Hebrews is really just a, a, like a message. It's a long sermon that was written to this, these group of people. Written with hindsight, looking back on the law, looking back on Jews, Jesus and all that Jesus did. The author says this, the law, this law that was given, this law that God initiated with the nation of Israel through Moses, it was just a shadow of the good things that are coming. It was just to show you of the good things that are in store. But it was just a shadow. For this reason, he would say, she would say, for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year after year after year after year after year individually on the day of atonement as a nation all the sacrifices that we try to offer year after year to make ourselves perfect those who draw near to worship and he's saying he's basically saying this or she's saying this that you could get everything right you could worship you could you could get everything right but you would still fall short it would never be enough to earn God's favor, it would never be enough to try to appease God and atone or to to offer forgiveness for your sins. So God had to do something for you. Because even doing this perfectly year after year, it wouldn't change a thing. But But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of our sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. To cover? Yes. To cover temporarily? Yes. But to take away, no, never. That can't be done unless God interceded on our behalf. Unless God was willing to offer an eternal sacrifice that would forever cover and carry away our sins. Unless God would look at human history and send his lamb. Behold, the lamb of God has come to take upon Himself and to carry away, once and for all, your sin, my sin, the ultimate fix, the ultimate problem. And worship changed forever. Worship would never be the same. In ancient times, God's demanded a sacrifice. In Jewish worship, We offered a sacrifice to atone for our sins, and in modern Christian worship, God would become the sacrifice on our behalf. God would offer himself as a sacrifice for the entire human race, for all of history, for all of time. That means nothing you do can change what God's already done. Nothing you do can undo what God's already done. There is forgiveness for your sins that you committed yesterday, that you committed on your way here. There are sins that that are going to be forgiven for what you're going to do tomorrow. Philip Yancey, an author, he makes this incredible statement that I think about whenever we cover something like this. He said, "God, God took a huge risk, a huge risk, announcing forgiveness ahead of time. It would be like telling your child, hey, I don't want you to break that, but if you do, it's okay, I'll forgive you hey, I don't want you to do this thing, but if you do it, there's forgiveness for it. God took a huge risk saying to the entire world, hey, I don't want you to treat each other poorly. I don't want you to take advantage. I don't want you to manipulate. I want you to love each other. And by loving each other, love me. That's what I want you to do. But if you don't, there's forgiveness. And and, and as big of a risk as we think that is, he actually took it. That's what he actually did for you and for me. And that's what makes Christian worship so different. You see, in Christian worship, we're not trying to earn God's favor. In Christian worship, we remember. We remember what God did for us. We remember the sacrifice that was offered for us, the sacrifice that we couldn't perform, we couldn't fulfill, we couldn't offer ourselves. So God offered it. Christian worship, we remember. In Christian worship, we celebrate. It's why we come in and we sing. It's it's why we sing these songs that are emotional. And and we have these Christian writers who write these incredible songs that that just kind of say the same things after year, after year, after year, because it's it's an emotional experience where we celebrate this incredible thing that God did for us. We remember what he did, and then we celebrate what he did because it's amazing. And here's this incredible thing about Christian worship that was so different about every worship before, maybe even the worship that you experienced in your church. It, somehow we, we got on this belief that when we come to church and we leave and we go home and you, know, you, you go out to lunch or you go out to dinner or whatever it might be, that things kind of end here. But in Christian worship, it doesn't end here. Every decision we make every day of our lives is influenced by the sacrifice Jesus offered for us, or at least should be influenced by the sacrifice Jesus offered for us. It doesn't end on a Sunday afternoon. It goes on and on and on. It's why churches gather all the time on Sunday and not on Sabbath, on Saturday, like they used to. Because on Sunday, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and we gather to celebrate what Jesus did and what he offered, that he was resurrected. We believe what Jesus said because he was resurrected. You heard me say this a hundred times already. If someone can, can predict their own death and resurrection and then pull it off, we just go with whatever he says. And everything Jesus said now has evidence. Everything Jesus said now has weight. Everything Jesus said now can be said it's true because he came back to life. He said, I would die and I'll die this way and I'm coming back to life and I'm coming back this way. And then he did it. And anyone that can do that deserves to be celebrated. It's why Paul, Paul, the most religious man, the greatest Pharisee, the guy who did everything right, and then he became a Christian. He began to look at the system and how the system was so just <clears throat> backwards. He says this in Romans. He says, therefore, I urge you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of what God has already done and what God's already offered for you to offer your bodies, not your neighbor, not your enemy, not your child, but to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's no more dead sacrifice. There's no more shedding of blood. All the blood that, was, that needs to be shed has been shed. This is no longer about death. This is about life. I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, as something that's alive, as something that has breath, as something that has hope, as something that has a future, as holy and pleasing to God. Because this, this is true and proper worship. That's why as Christians we remember. It's why as as Christians we celebrate what God has done. And it's ultimately why we submit to what God's asking us to do. Because we serve a God who submitted Himself to us. We serve a God who sacrificed Himself for us. He didn't have to. Nothing required Him to do that except that He wanted to be in a relationship with you. And the only way to do that was to submit himself, was to humble himself, and to die a sinner's death. So if God was willing to submit himself to us, why wouldn't we be willing to submit ourselves to God? If God is for us, if God wants the best for us, why wouldn't we be willing to honor God and to live for God? If God died for us, couldn't we live for him? Christian worship looks completely different than any form of ancient worship. We remember what happened. We celebrate what he did. And we submit ourselves to what his love for us required from us. And all of this, here's the incredible thing, all of this happens when we take communion, as we're about to do in a few moments. All of this, the whole point of communion is to come together and to remember what Jesus did to celebrate the sacrifice he performed on our behalf and to say, God, this doesn't end here when I drink this cup and I eat this bread and then I go and I do what I want. But I will submit and I will spend every day living and offering myself as a living sacrifice for you. I will offer myself to you to do what your love requires us to do. And what does his love require us to do? Jesus gave the most simple answer, to love one another, the way that I have loved you. By this, everyone else will know that you're my follower. Let me pray for us before we take communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for this incredible sacrifice. God, I thank you that as we look over this this story, God, as we look over this bit of history, God, that we can see your plan begin to unfold, that you had to come, God, and do what we couldn't do for us, God, that you made this world, but we kind of messed it up a little bit along the way, and the only way to make things right was for you to come and for you to sacrifice and for you to offer yourself so that we could be in a relationship with you. I pray that you'd be with us, Lord, as we are about to receive communion. God, that it would be a moment where we remember what you've done. God, and more personally, we celebrate, God, the the things that you've done and that you're doing in our lives. And finally, where we submit to you and say, God, I will do what you want me to do from this point forward. Be with us, Lord. Give us the wisdom to see you in all of this and the courage to take that step. In Jesus' name, amen.